I remember uh, being sent over to Vietnam, May 3rd, 1970, the day of my sister's birthday. And uh, spent 11 and a half months over there. Loved flying in helicopters. I hated landing. <laughs> <laughs> it was an honor to serve my country, but I don't really wish it on anybody, though. It's Heidi with the hot dish once again, and that was Dave Puss. He's a Vietnam veteran from my hometown of Manador, North Dakota. It is always a good time to thank our veterans for serving our country and protecting our freedoms, but especially on the 4th of July. Joel, thanks so much for joining me, and I know how much you have enjoyed your time on the honor flights. And we have a special guest today. I'm going to let you introduce James. It's never too late to recognize some of our veterans who didn't get the recognition that they deserved when they came home the first time. There's no question about that. When I was first approached about going on honor flights and and helping out, get word out and encourage people to sign up and just make sure that families knew about honor flights, the the person that I got to know was Jane Matichak. She's flown with hundreds of veterans from North Dakota to D.C. She's a nurse at the VA hospital in Fargo, and she's president of the Honor Flights North Dakota. And I have to tell you this, she's loved by more people than you can possibly imagine, but she's from a big family, so it isn't everybody. Uh, welcome, Jane. Good, good, to, good to have Jane, you on the hot Jane, dish, do Jane. do not Thank put you. up with him. Jane, you're too nice. Now, you know, you're sitting right next to him, so feel like you can get him at any point. So, Jane, I want to ask you this. It all starts somewhere. I mean, I know you work at the VA. I know your dedication to veterans. But, you know, something made you decide to dive in the third end of the pool when it came to the honor flights. What was it? It really did. Actually, I was privileged to go on the honor flights as a medical staff person when they first started in 2006. I did two trips on 747s, and uh, we had taken every... World War II veteran who had applied in the state, and we were pretty much done. And so we just quit going, whereas many other states kept kept on. And so wearing my honor flight clothing and jacket at the VA, I had a lot of Korean War veterans asking, well, how come we never got to go? When do we get to go? And so that kind of really inspired me to get the ball rolling again. So in the end of 2014, I contacted a couple of board members that I worked with earlier in 2006 and said, hey, what do you think about this? And so we kind of started beating the pavement and making presentations and things and really got that going. So we put a board together, applied for hub status, did the 501c3, etc. And we did our first trip then in October of 2015. I want to make sure people understand this about the the, the honor flights that you put together. Uh, you know, these men get on a plane, they fly out to DC, they stay one night, they're touring, touring. You can walk us through the whole agenda once we get on the ground. They stay the second night, they fly back the third night. And I want to be clear that that the people listening to The Hot Dish understand how much that costs these veterans. How much, Jane? We're up to about a quarter of a million dollars per trip right but now. But per veteran, how much per does veteran, it cost them? About sixteen dollars to $1,800 per veteran. And how much do they pay? Zero. There. Zero. Heidi? I would come fly and see you more often if it was zero. I just want to be clear about that. You, you know, the, the amazing thing, when you do fly, speaking of flying a lot, I am always amazed when an honor flight comes in 
literally the whole airport stops and everybody, literally people stood for 15 minutes and clapped. Put their hand over their heart, said, thank you. It's amazing. I don't think you know what you're going to do to Jane uh, because <laughs> me trying to get her on the media all the time, I know how emotional you're getting. And if you only knew Jane, that isn't fair what you're doing to her. I want to make sure people understand the pace of all of this, because this last flight we were on was the first flight I've been on where we didn't have World War II veterans, uh, we, you know, and so you, you've got Korea and I know you're accepting uh, Vietnam veterans. There was a number of them mm -hmm. there, but the pace for these men and women that, that serve this country in uniform, describe the agenda of what they go through, if you wouldn't mind. It's exhausting. It really is. From the time we get out there, we hit the ground running, we load the buses, and we're off to the races. We stop at the U.S. Army Museum. We go to the World War II for a group photo, and then a banquet in the evening. And then the next day, we're right back out at uh, National Archives. And then we stop at the Navy, Iwo Jima, we do Arlington National Cemetery, the changing of the guard, and a trolley tour there. We're at the Lincoln Memorial, the Vietnam Wall, the Korean. Where else do we stop? Where don't we stop? Yeah, I mean, keep yeah. naming things. Oh, at Fort McHenry, yeah. we stop there. And so it's an amazing trip. And we're fortunate. We have such amazing uh, supporters in every community that mm -hmm. these veterans come from across North Dakota, Minnesota. Like people are so giving that that's why we're allowed to do three days and two nights. And, and I have to tell you, Everybody has their favorite. I mean, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers is one of mine, obviously. And and but when we get to the Lincoln Memorial, and they're able to go to uh, the Korean and the Vietnam Memorial and go back and hang out at the mm -hmm. the feet of the great man, it's just so much fun to watch their emotions to it. Tell people what we come home to, just uh so they understand that. We come home to an airport of standing room only people who cannot wait to welcome their family members back home. That's quite a homecoming. It's it's just so earth moving for all of them. And especially the Vietnam era now, they're saying, wow, I wish we would have got this yeah. the first time we come. We, we hear that every single time from almost every single veteran. We wish we would have gotten this the first time we came home. And it was total opposite. Yeah. A good friend of ours, Heidi Lyle Prochno, was on the last flight. And, uh, you know, Lyle, the minute he got off the plane and, and got through the gate area and saw that wall of people and all the music and the bands and, and the kids and, and people rushing to greet, you know, Lyle couldn't control his emotions. And he came up to me and he said, I never came home to this, Joel. I never came home to this. And it just, you know, that just completely stuck with me. Also, one other thing, Heidi, there's another tradition that the honor flight and, and the committee that Jane is on has uh, that happens at the banquet. <laughs> Tell people about that. Yeah, so we're one of the few honor flights that does a, a surprise personalized mail call. So we send an invitation out to the, the next veterans on the list. We take about 100 per flight. And once they respond that they're going, we contact their next of kin on their application and we ask for fan mail. So that mail is sent to us and sorted out. So I would literally carry tubs of mail from the post office and it's sorted all over my bed. And that goes into individual envelopes for each veteran. And then at the banquet, um, I have this old fashioned mail call bag. And so I would sneak in the back of the room and, and holler, mail call. 
And they're so amazed that people would take the time to write the letters. And I, if Joel lets me off to share a, a very touching story, which makes me cry every time, but it was, it's the reason we keep doing Honor Flight. And it was specifically related to the mail call. So, no, go. Oh, can I go, do that? Girl. I know. So, this gentleman had gotten, I think it was like 33 fan mail letters from friends and family. And he was so touched, like he couldn't even open the envelope that night at at the banquet. And so they were dismissed back to the room. And the next morning I saw him and I said, hey, bud, did you get through your mail? He was sitting down eating. And he laid his fork down and he looked up at me and the tears were brimming over his eyes. And he said, I couldn't get past the third one. He said, I didn't know anybody still cared. And that was our very first trip in 2015. And, you know, that's just stuck with me. Like, we have to show people that we do care. Entire communities are supporting all of you. And so that's what makes us just keep going because they're life-changing trips. And and we need to show everybody that, that we do care. You know, I don't frequently differentiate between rural and urban in terms of our patriotism. But I do believe that when you grow up in a community where the VFW is the center of your life. You have a different sense of respect and knowledge about what people have gone through. And so, but I I think the whole purpose of this podcast today is say, it's never too late. It's never too late to say thank you. It's never too late to write a check that wherever you are, there is going to be an honor flight opportunity for you to contribute to, you know, look it up or make, make that a 4th of July pledge that, you support the efforts of not just Jane and, and the work that she's doing in the Red River Valley, but you support the efforts of what's happening across the country. And I know, Jane, is there a national website that people can go to so that they can find out what's in their area where they could contribute or help? Yes, absolutely. It's honorflight.org. And they have a map of the United States on there, and it shows which states do and don't have honor flights. Right now, there are five states that don't. So a national has a program to take those veterans. But if you click on the state, it'll tell you who the representatives are and their contact information as well. And Jane, God bless you. Thank you. Before we go, I just want to add, Jane, if you don't go to heaven, I ain't got a shot. So let me know. Well, thank you so much, you guys, and and happy 4th of July, everyone who is listening. It's a day to celebrate our democracy. It's a day to think about what more we can do as individuals in this country to advance our democracy. But one thing we know for sure is no one has sacrificed more for our freedom and our democracy than an American veteran. And this is a day to say thank you to them as well. You bet. Amen. Thank you. Yes. I've had the privilege of flying to Washington, D.C. with some of our veterans. It's emotional. It is to see how emotional they are and to realize what they have sacrificed for our country. Here's an interview that I did last year from D.C. This is where I did it from. So I'm here with Bill Lear right outside uh, the Korean Memorial. So tell people about your tour in, in Korea and what you went through. Well, I was over there as uh, uh, with the field artillery, 188th field artillery, and uh, I, I was forward observer. So anyway, we had to find the enemy and zero in on them so the howitzers could shoot mortars up at it. And 
Anyway, they made the uh, jump off on Heartbreak Ridge, and that's where I wound up and uh, lost my leg there. So you were at Heartbreak Ridge, and that's right. you came home missing one leg. How damaged up did the other one get? Uh, just a few uh, shrapnel, but it had shrapnel all the way up the side of my uh, body and my face, but most of that healed up, and some of it worked, worked out and some didn't. So. Yeah. so, Bill, how old were you when all this happened? I was 18. Yeah. What is that like to be 18, as healthy as a horse? You're out there doing everything your country asks for, and the next next day, you know, you're dealing with the issues you had to deal with. Yeah, yeah. But you know, have to make up your mind. You do the best what you can. And, you know, there, there isn't any other way to do it. But you can't sit and mope about it either. You know, you just that's what kills you. I think. I'm, I'm going to let you go because you get to have your moment here at the. Korean Memorial, but, you know, everybody thanks you for what you went through. You went home, you made a family, you made a living, and it never slowed you down a bit. That's just amazing. No, I never tried to let it bother. Why? You know? I'll never hear the story about Heartbreak Ridge again without thinking of you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Amazing, man. You know, it wouldn't be the 4th of July without a tribute to some American pie. Join me as we head into the kitchen at the Red Truck Bakery in Marshall, Virginia. I'm Brian Noyes. Um, I'm the owner of the Red Truck Bakery. And right now we're right outside the kitchen. You're going to hear a lot of banging around uh, and dropping things and probably a little bit of uh, cussing. But uh, it's a busy couple days as we get ready for pies for the 4th of July weekend. We have apple pies, blueberry pies, Dutch blueberries. We have strawberry rhubarb that is finished off with a lattice crust. And same thing, the sweet and the tangy from the uh, rhubarb is a perfect combination. It's a lot of work, but it's fun work. What, where are we at with these pies that are in the oven? They are crisping up on the top. They have a beautiful golden color. They are not quite done yet. The insides are not bubbling. What, what turn is this? You, you put them in for 20 or so and then turned it? Yeah, so the, um, we put them in for an hour altogether. So we turn them every 20 minutes. They are almost at their second turn and then they will be baking for the last 20. Okay, and then that's when we hear you grunt as you carry that big pan out of the uh... <laughs> Oh yeah, and they are hefty, pies. My name is Rihanna and I'm super proud to be a part of the team. Well this is my mom and this is my nursery school teacher from a million years ago and yeah. she's got the best pie dough recipe in the world and I tasted it once when I was knee high to a grasshopper and I've been baking ever since. <laughs> um, the, the tradition of handing down baking traditions and stories is part of what keeps it fun in the kitchen. So there's the yeah. American tradition and then the Greek tradition, which is a whole different style of sharing. But I love the, it's a country thing to share your pie dough recipe. <laughs> I grew up in the Pennsylvania Dutch area and food was the main thing there. And when I got married, my mother shook her finger and said, from now on, you're responsible for your husband's food. 
forever. Food's a big thing. It's how yeah. we show love. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my grandmother said that too, and it, that's in the new cookbook where she she taught me to te to cook Southern, and she, the first day I was in there, I was at 12 years old, and she said, now you know that it's not just about cooking food, but it's about making comfort for other people. Yeah, that's, and that's how we show, yeah, that's, that's uh, how we show how we care. That was the uh, idea. <laughs> and it's true, the cookies and the bread dough, they know if you're salty, the bread won't rise right. It knows. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Ashby Ponds now, and life is very, very different. <laughs> <laughs> but you've come to, to taste all the goodness at this yes, bakery. Yes, yes. Is, is this your first visit here? Yes. Yes, I'm having a wonderful day. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till you see the backside. You can see the kitchen toiling okay, around. That's I, the fun part. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> She's kind of a fast mover in there, so don't get in her way. Who, me? Yeah. You told me to make 56 loaves of bread today, sir. Yeah, yeah. It was How many a, loaves of bread? I did 57, thank you very much. Uh, okay. I was going to ask oh, where we're at. Right. You're an overachiever. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, we caught up with Brian Noyes, owner of the Red Truck Bakery. Brian, thanks for joining us. Brian, it's so great to meet you. And I have to tell you, your cake was fabulous. Well, listen, Brian, I mean, I think all of us who grew up in rural America remember favorably the small town bakeries, but everybody who works in this business knows how much hard work it is. So explain to me how, you know, you got into this and what that bakery has meant to your rural town. I, I often think back of how and why I got into this. I was the art director for the Washington Post and for Smithsonian Magazine and Preservation Magazine for 35 years or so. And also I had a food interest and some vacation time. I would take some cooking courses at the Culinary Institute of America, the other CIA, I have to say, in D.C., as well as a cooking school just outside of Washington that was started by two White House pastry chefs. So I learned quite a bit from them. It just kind of fueled a little fantasy I had about opening up a, a bakery somewhere, someday. And I ended up getting a little farmhouse an hour due west of D.C., out in Fauquier County. And I was usually heading out on Friday afternoons to bake for the weekend. And a uh, friend of mine who had a country store out there thought that she might be interested in selling some of my pies and cakes on Saturday morning. So... Being an art director, I knew that my old farmhouse needed an old red truck out front. And I searched online. I found this beauty from 1954 that was for sale. I got turned over to the owner, who turned out to be Tommy Hilfiger. And he, uh, I bought it, and he trailered it down. It sat in front of the farmhouse for a while. And then it became the truck that I would drive these pies and breads and cakes fresh out of the oven to this little country market just, you know, a couple miles away. So it kind of became the Red Truck Bakery, and it became just this sweet little location that we pretty much instantly outgrew. So within, I don't know, maybe six years or so, uh, I was casting about for a second but primary location, and uh, I found that in a town about 15 minutes north in an old Masonic Lodge and pharmacy 
on a dusty little main street in a village where nearly every storefront was boarded up. So Brian, none of this, none of this works unless you're good at it. Uh, that's pretty clear and you're good at it. Obviously you came from the West coast though, and you got some background in cooking in the South and there's a little bit of flavor of everything the way it sounds, Brian. Yeah, I was a fifth generation, am a fifth generation Monterey, California guy. And um, my paternal grandparents lived in North Carolina up in the mountains near Asheville. And so starting when I was 12 years old, I'd fly out during the summer and my grandmother would pick me up. She'd drive me to a meat and three diner on the French Broad River on the way back to Hendersonville. And we ordered Southern food, which was a foreign cuisine to me. I thought everybody ate abalone sandwiches on Fisherman's Wharf. And, you know, and, and the menu got put in front of me. It was okra and smothered chicken and succotash and just things I had never heard of. And I asked my grandmother to order for me. I loved it all. She took me home and said, we're going to start doing some Southern cooking. She was a one-room school teacher from Iowa, and so I figured she knew she had a project ahead. I don't doubt that at all. I, I would have loved to have met her. For me, Brian, the question becomes, did you like it? Right away, when you were going to that, you know, meet and three kind of a restaurant, you know, I, I went into a small town restaurant once, and I'm not kidding you, Brian, I ordered a hamburger and fries. And my dad whacked me on the side of the head. And, and he said, you'll eat what's on the menu. And what the special of the day is, you'll eat. And believe me, uh, the lady in back that cooked made that perfectly clear. And so that's the way we were raised as well. But did you like it? Coming from the West Coast, was it something you acquired or instantly went, man, this is good? I loved it immediately. The okra might have got pushed around the plate a little bit. But, you know, everything else is really great. I, I learned to like collards. I learned to enjoy okra. Sweet tea was on the table, and that was foreign to me as well. But, you know, I, I really did like it all. And so we showed up at her house, and the buttermilk had just arrived that day. And so she sent me to get it out of the fridge and said, we're going to start making some biscuits. So it, it just started right then. I want to turn to kind of this business you know, obviously getting national exposure, Barack Obama bragging about your pies, that doesn't hurt the business either. But, you know, you had to you had to deliver a good pie to make that happen. And so the question that I have is, you have located your business in a part of the, the country that a lot of people think you can't find workforce, that you can't find people to help you out. Tell me about how you're recruiting workforce, how you're training your workforce, and whether occasionally you think, oh, this would be a lot easier if I were downtown D.C. It's tough finding good people. But once we get them, I mean, we train them and, and they stick with us for a good while. When I opened up the second location further north, we kept the original one. So now I had two locations. And it was really tough to make sure that the food was consistent from the, Mar the new Marshall store to the original Warrington store to what they were making eight years ago and, you know, to what, what we were making just a week ago. And I've learned that the best source for getting in new candidates 
are a few regional rural newspapers, weekly and daily newspapers throughout the Shenandoah Valley. So that's the other direction from us. And I, I've always had my eyes set on the D.C., Fairfax, Reston area, but the best ones are coming from out west. So, Brian, another quick question from the, the younger side of the High Camp family. Just want to ask you if it's if it's universal in terms of, you know, some people in the rural area have decided what they eat. And this this is it. I mean, this is what I eat. It's what I eat on Friday. It's what I eat on Saturday, uh, you know, on Sunday nights, pizza night. And, uh, you know, at the High Camp household, it was roast beef on Sunday night. And so to break through some of that and make people look at uh, some of what they could enjoy if they just tried it, was that hard in a rural area? Not really. I started off with knowing it was a Virginia bakery out in the boonies, I wanted a moonshine cake. So I found a friend in the next county who was cooking up some hooch. And, and so we came up with a chocolate moonshine cake. And then, you know, regular cakes, not decorated stuff. I didn't want fussy stuff. I mean, they wouldn't have bought into that anyway. I just wanted rustic, rural, kind of free-form crostatas, which is simply pie dough wrapped around whatever you can find at the farmer's market. It's open face. And um, they liked that idea. They didn't want something... Highfalutin, they wanted simple things. But we're a seasonal bakery. I'm a big pie guy more than cakes. So I wanted pies with fruit that just came from local farms and the local farmer's market. So it takes a while to convince people why they can't get a cherry pie in the middle of December. But, you know, at the end of June or July, we're cranking out these fresh fruit pies. So you know, it's things that we're already used to, hopefully made better, hopefully. And, you know, when we opened, we had a line out the door and it's just been pretty busy ever since. I mean, it helped also that we were about the only business open on the entire downtown Main Street. But we kind of kicked in a food renaissance there and, and the bank next door to us had closed. It was boarded up. The, the family run grocery store of 50 years, they had just celebrated their 50th anniversary the month before. And the day I signed the lease, they closed down. And it was just like that up and down the street. And I was a little nervous. But within a year, a kind of hipster butcher shop opened up across the road from us. And then, so we had a butcher and a baker. And then friends opened up a farm-to-table restaurant across the street. And of course, I wanted them to call it the Candlestick Maker. But they named it Field and Main, but they did ask me if I designed their, their logo. So pretty soon, other people saw how busy it was starting to get on our little main street, just in, a mile off of the main freeway from the Shenandoah Valley to D.C. And every business, every storefront on main street is occupied with coffee houses, antique stores, galleries, and there's no looking back on it. So, Brian, I'm the youngest of a whole bunch of high camps that have red hair, and so you know, when you're the youngest, you get picked on the most. And I just want to tell you, I've been called an ugly tomato before. And apparently, in your line of work, ugly tomatoes are pretty important. So I think that's a good sign for me. I'm just saying. The first cookbook had a green tomato pie. And then a woman wrote me and said, yeah, but can I make a pie with real tomatoes? <laughs> it's like, well, if you mean ripe, yeah, um, yeah, I can work on that. I mean, 
the ripe tomatoes, heirlooms, are really juicy, so that's much more liquid in, in the pie. So I kind of reformulated it. It's in the second cookbook, and it's called our Mid-July Tomato Pie. And I think I even pointed out that the uglier, the better. That's, that's my rule for BLTs, for sure. Well, listen, I'm going to recommend to anyone who is listening to this to go out on your website, which is Red Truck Bakery, all one word, dot com. And just your mouth will water the minute you turn the page, the minute you get on that site. And Brian, I'm hoping that uh, we keep you busy for a long, long time. And the real purpose of having you on other than, you know, telling you how grateful I am for the treats that you sent me and didn't send Joel. The real reason to have you on is to encourage other people to think creatively about what they can do in those small towns where the storefronts are all shuttered. And and to think it doesn't just have to rely on people locally. You, If you have a good idea and you are creative and you're passionate about what you do, you can do amazing things from rural America. I would say don't do your homework. I didn't do it. I just wanted to open a bakery out there and I knew it would work. Nobody else did. And I, I just stuck with it. And, you know, if I'd listened to anybody else or created a business plan, I'd still be at the Washington Post. Just do it. Just jump on it. I mean, it, maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But I mean, how are you going to know otherwise? It doesn't work unless you're passionate about it, unless it's something you really care about. And, and you can tell you really care about producing a quality product. And that, that's another, I think, Joel, you'd agree, a common factor of people we know is they care about doing good work. They care about putting good food on the table. They care about a good weld on, on an on a aluminum weld on a dock. They care about the quality of what they do. And, you know, you can't replace that in a lot of places in the world. And rural America's got a lot of good talent. Well, and Brian, you can see it from a mile away. You can see it whether or not the rows are straight in the field. You can see it whether or not they got out and sprayed when it was time to spray. The business that was next to you was closed, wasn't as good at what they did as what you were. And, you know, I'm not whining anymore about Heidi getting something, and I'm not. You said you only had one address. And I will tell you this, on, on podcasts like this or anything, I'm a, I'm a radio host, and so you don't give out your cell number. But my address is 9457 West Ridge Road, Hankinson. And I will eat semi-responsibly, just so you know. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll fix you up. I look forward to meeting you in person. Everybody head down. Head well, down from so. the D.C. area to see... Uh, what what Brian's accomplished in this small town. We'll be making pies for your 4th of July. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. This was fabulous. And, you know, I, I just, the passion you have for this is so incredible. All right, we'll fix Joel up. Joel, you, Joel, you have to send me an email with your address and I'll, I'll take care of you. There we go. Gee, Brian, you want it in the next five minutes or you want it in the next 10? So, yeah. Well, it'll probably be after your onslaught from the rest of the country now that you gave your address out. But uh, (laughs) look for our packaging. (laughs) We've got a great big rock that says hike camp at the top of our driveway. We were pooched no matter what. Thanks for listening to The Hot Dish. And if 4th of July at Lake Elsie is anything like it usually is, Joel is going to be the host with the most. There's going to be a lot of celebration, a lot of fireworks, and a lot of good food, I think. Maybe a few beers. Maybe, Joel. 
Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> just, a, hope, just a few, Heidi. <laughs> hopefully you all will have a wonderful celebration of this great democracy. Thank you so much for listening to The Hot Dish. We'll see you in a couple weeks.